Welcome to Abergavenny Baptist Church, building faith and friendship. Well, we're continuing in our series entitled Parables Jesus Told, and uh, where we're looking at those pointed stories, those stories that make a point that Jesus told within Luke's gospel. And so today we're looking at Luke chapter 16 and verses 19 to 31, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, which has a, a very challenging and a very profound message. But unfortunately, we often don't hear that message because we get so caught up in all the detail and the imagery of the afterlife and God's judgment. Uh, Imagery uh, like in, in verse 23 where it says the rich man was in Hades where he was found in torment. And in verse 24 where the rich man asked Lazarus to come and dip his finger in water and cool his tongue... And then he says, because I am in agony in this fire. Agony in this fire. And, and we get distracted by all this imagery of the, of the afterlife, of what happens to us today when we, we, are, we die, uh, of judgment, uh, that we don't hear what the parable is actually trying to say. You see, within the parable, the, the parable is not about what happens to us when we die. Jesus is not trying to give a teaching about what happens when we die. Jesus is merely using the setting of the afterlife as the context in order to tell his, his parable. But unfortunately, this becomes quite distracting for us. So I'm going to do something that I never thought I would ever do. Uh, before we look at this parable we first going to look at the imagery and the, the, the concepts of God's judgment in the afterlife. And um, so we're going to look at that first. And so next week, <laughs> uh, we're going to look at the parable. And so this week, we're going to first look at, at this imagery. Now, Jesus is drawing off the imagery of the afterlife and of judgment that most Jews in his day believed in. We we know this because we can read um, a lot of the other Jewish writing from that time period, such as the book of 1 Enoch, chapter 22, or 4 Ezra, chapter 7. What they believed was essentially when everyone died, you would go to Hades, the realm of the dead. But they believed that Hades was divided into two parts. And so we can read in uh, 4 Ezra chapter 7 and verse 36 as an example. It says, The pit of torment shall appear, and opposite shall be the place of rest. And the furnace of Gehenna, which is sometimes translated as hell, shall be disclosed, and opposite it, the paradise of delight. So within Hades, there were two parts. There was paradise, which was a place of tranquil peace and rest, often depicted with streams of water or a a banquet meal. And this is where the faithful followers of God would go, the righteous would go. And of course, all the old faithful followers of God, like Abraham, the father of the Jews, would be there. And then there was the not-so-nice place, the place of of torment, the place of judgment. 
This was often depicted with fire, or worms, or darkness, or silence, or a watery abyss. And this was the place where the ungodly, the wicked, the evil, those who had turned their backs on God, uh, would go. And everyone would remain in Hades until the great day of judgment when those who were in paradise would rise to new life in a new and restored creation. But those in the not-so-nice place, the place of torment and judgment, they would remain in Hades until they simply perished. We can see this, for example, in 4 Ezra chapter 7 and verse 61. It says, "For For it is they who are now like a mist, and are similar to a flame and smoke, they are set on fire and burn hotly and are extinguished. And so Jesus is merely drawing off this imagery of, of, that all the Jews in his day kind of held to. And, uh, and he particularly uses the metaphor of, of Gehenna for the place of judgment. Now the The word Gehenna is sometimes translated as hell, which is very misleading because the word hell conjures up the idea of an underground torture chamber that has more to do with medieval imagery than it does with the Bible. It's also very misleading because Gehenna was the name of an actual place just outside of Jerusalem. It was the name of a massive, smoldering garbage dump. That's where everyone would go and throw all their rubbish. And there was this continual fire that would always be burning, that would consume and destroy all the rubbish. And so it was a a symbol, a perfect symbol, a perfect image for God's end time judgment. Where God would wipe out and destroy all evil in the world. So it was an image of judgment and destruction. Jesus also draws off the imagery that you find in Isaiah chapter 66 and verse 24, which says, And they will go out and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. The worms that eat them will not die, and the fire that burns will not be quenched. Again, the image and the idea over here is the image of judgment and destruction. And the idea that the the worm will never die and the fire that will not be quenched is an idea of eternal destruction. That they would be wiped out and destroyed forever, never to return. There's a finality about it. Many other images that Jesus draws upon and uses in, in the New Testament and the Bible uses is that of utter darkness, weeping, being outside the presence of God. All of those can be seen, for example, in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 12. 
The idea of a watery abyss. Uh, one example of that is Luke chapter 8 and verse 31. Or a profound silence. You can see one example of that is in Psalms 31 and verse 17. Or burning sulfur in the presence of God, which is what is used in the book of Revelation chapter 14 and verse 10. But the big question is, how do we interpret and understand all this imagery? Now there are three main views that I'm going to be sharing with you this morning. And all three views are held by Christians, by Bible-believing Christian scholars. The first view is a literal view which would actually take all these imagery literally, and they would say that a wicked person would literally burn and, and would be eaten by worms and so on. Now, I find that view very problematic because all the imagery is contradictory. All the imagery is contradictory. You have fire, yet utter darkness. You have weeping, yet utter silence. You have a watery abyss, yet fire. You're in the presence of God, yet you're separate from the presence of God. So it's actually impossible to take all of the imagery literally because they're all contradictory. In fact, no one does actually take them all literally. I've yet to read a commentator who holds to a literal view who actually thinks that a person in paradise can have a conversation with a person in the not-so-nice place, the place of judgment and torment, as Abraham does with, uh, with um, the rich man. They all say, oh, no, no, that's a literary device that Jesus is using merely to make a point within his parable. Ah, so it's not literal. So the second view is... A figurative view, which will take all of these imagery figuratively and sees the imagery as a symbol of destruction and death. So, for example, a worm is a symbol of decay. Fire is a symbol of judgment and destruction. Darkness, silence, the watery abyss is a symbol of uncreation. The, the reversal of creation. Remember in Genesis chapter 1, before God has created, there is nothing but darkness and a watery abyss. That was a symbol for nothingness. So the idea is everything would return to nothingness. This obviously is a, a far better view of understanding all the imagery and how all the imagery works. They also point out that when the Bible talks about God's final judgment, it normally just states that the wicked person will perish. So, for example, Paul, the Apostle Paul, never uses the imagery of fire or worms and so on when speaking about God's final end-time judgment. For Paul, the opposite of eternal life is eternal death. The wages of sin is death. 
And so Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9, they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out of the presence of the Lord. It will be an everlasting destruction. So this view would hold that when an ungodly person dies, they will be judged and then they will simply cease to exist Forever. An eternal death. Eternal destruction. And this is their eternal punishment. So this view does really well on understanding all the imagery and how all the imagery works and also how the imagery fits in with the teaching of the rest of the New Testament. However, it doesn't really deal with the imagery of weeping or anguish or torment, which doesn't seem to have much to do with decay or death, but seems to have more to do with punishment and suffering. So this leads to a third view, which is the fi- what some call the final end view. And they effectively agree with the previous view. They, they effectively agree with the figurative view Except they will hold that the ungodly will experience a temporary time of suffering before they merely cease to exist forever. So, they will point to many texts, but texts such as Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28, where Jesus says, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one, that's God, who can destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. So what they believe is that a person, a wicked person, would eventually be consumed, would be destroyed by the fire of Gehenna. So they believe it's a temporary suffering that leads to an eternal destruction. Now, of course, they still take all the imagery figuratively. They don't think you're literally going to be burning in a fire, but they, they believe that all the imagery is pointing to the idea that there will be a temporary suffering that leads to an eternal destruction. And they also believe that the length and the severity of the suffering will be in proportion to what the person deserves. So the Bible in many places, just one example in uh, Romans chapter 2 and verse 6, says God will repay each person according to what they have done. God will repay each person according to what they have done. There will be justice. If someone's been a rapist, a murderer, committed genocide, If someone has emotionally, physically, and sexually abused children, there will be a more severe anguish and torment. There will be justice. There will be judgment. The person will get will receive suffering in proportion to what they deserve. No one is going to say that's unfair. Everyone's going to say, that's just. That's fair. That's what the person 
deserves. But this still leaves the question, what exactly is the nature of this torment? Now, the Bible doesn't clearly and specifically state what that is, and so we are kind of left to speculate. We do get some clues from the Jewish writing at the time of Jesus. Uh, so, for example, for Ezra in verse, uh, chapter 7 and verse 87 says, They shall utterly waste away in confusion and be consumed with shame and shall wither with fear at seeing the glory of the Most High. And so it's possible that the nature of this torment would be an inner anguish of guilt and shame. An inner anguish of remorse. When suddenly you, you, dis- you, you, you discover all the things you've done wrong. When suddenly you discover how much pain and hurt you've caused other people. That will bring incredible inner anguish of guilt and shame. It could be an anguish over the realization of your fate. That there is a God who loves you and wants to have a relationship with you, who wants you to enjoy everlasting life. But you turned your back on that. And now it's too late. It could be a fact that you experience all the pain and emotional suffering that you caused others. That for just for a moment you experience all that pain that others suffer, that you caused others to suffer. C.S. Lewis believes that God merely gives people what they want. And he, drew, he looks at uh, you know, Romans chapter 1 where, where Paul basically says God's judgment is God giving people what they want. We read that in verse 24 and verse 26 and verse 28, he repeats it three times. Therefore God gave them over to their sinful desires of their heart. Gave them over to their shameful lusts. Gave them over to their deprived minds. It basically says, I'll give you what you want. If you want to live a life your way, if you want to live a life without me, if you want to follow your own selfish desires, I will let you have that. And the torment we experience, that a person would experience, would be living with your own selfishness, and greed, and anger, and lust, and your own selfish and sinful passions and desires burning within you. C.S. Lewis says there's basically only two types of people in the world. Those who say to God, your will be done. And those who at the end, God says... Your will be done. You want a life apart from me? Okay. I'll give you what you want. And they have a life apart from him. Which is no life at all. And it leads to the anguish of having to live with all your own sinfulness, your own passions and lusts and greed and anger. And ultimately... It leads to eternal death. Tim Keller, very similarly, he says, if you base your whole identity on something other than God, 
If you base your whole identity and your self-worth on something other than God, on, on making money, or being rich, or being powerful, of having status and reputation, of being very smart and clever, of having lots of positions, if you base your, your self-worth, something that you just can't live without, something that defines your self-worth and identity on something other than God, when you die, that will be stripped away. All be stripped away, and you'll suddenly come to the realization that you have no identity. You have no self worth. And you'll experience that inner torment as you realize that you have no identity, you have no self worth. A couple of very interesting things in, in, in our parable is, is one, uh, the rich man never asked to get out of the not so nice place and go to paradise. He never asked for that. He just asked for Lazarus to come to where he is and relieve his suffering. You see, he doesn't want to go to paradise. He doesn't want to stay with God. He doesn't want to be with God and God's people. He wants to do things his own way, his own selfish way. He still wants to be the boss. And God kind of says, okay, that's what you want. That's what you can have. And then secondly, he still thinks he's the boss. You take note in that parable, he's still trying to boss Lazarus around. He still thinks he's got money and status and power, but he hasn't. His whole self-worth was based on the fact that he had all this money and all this power. That's where his identity was. That's where his self-worth was. And now it's all gone, but he still thinks he's got it. And there must be a real frustration and agony as he he wants to be the boss. He wants to have power, but he, he has to realize he doesn't have it. And so he's in a torment as he realizes that he has no identity, no self-worth anymore. Because he's based his identity and his self-worth on something other than God. We don't know exactly what that torment is, the nature of that torment. It could be a combination of all of these. But what we do know is that it will be fair. It will be just. For God knows our hearts. Some people might still object, but how could a loving God allow people to suffer like this even if it's only temporary? Two comments. Firstly, if this is your objection, then I want to ask you a question. What are you actually asking God to do? Are you asking God to Forgive all past sins and give them a fresh start at all cost? That's what he did on the cross. He's already done that. You see, God doesn't want anyone to experience eternal death. He wants to forgive everyone. And if you put your faith in Jesus, that's what you will receive. God will take that punishment upon himself so that you can experience forgiveness, so that you can experience eternal life. God's already done that. But what if the person doesn't want God's forgiveness? What if the person doesn't want anything to do with God? They don't want, they want anything to do with God. They, they don't want to, they want to live apart from God. Should God leave that person alone? 
Well, I'm afraid that's exactly what God does do. He gives them what they want. And he says, your will be done. And that selfish and self-centered living leads to anguish. And ultimately, to eternal death. Secondly, it would actually be unloving of God if he did not judge evil. It's only us who live a a relatively comfortable and easy life who have an objection with the idea of God's judgment. Those who have been raped, who have witnessed a genocide, who have had loved ones brutally murdered, cry out for justice. When an unrepented pedophile has lived a life of comfort and seems to have got away with it scot-free and dies at a ripe old age. When a cruel dictator who has committed genocide lives a life of luxury and comfort and again dies at a ripe old age, people cry out, where's the justice? That's not fair. How could God let them get away with that? But the answer is, God doesn't let them get away with it. There will be justice. There will be judgment. And each person will get what they deserve. In summary... What I believe is that when a non-Christian dies, if they've been a relatively good, kind person, they will suddenly come to the realization that there is a God, that He loves them, that He wants a relationship with them, and that they have selfishly and self-centeredly turned their backs on God and declared they wanted nothing to do with God. And now God is giving them what they want. And he's saying, your will be done. And that realization will give them a real sense of anguish and fear. They will have everything that they've done wrong. All the unkind things that they've done will be exposed. And that will fill them with a consuming guilt and shame and remorse. And then they will simply cease to exist. If a person has been particularly evil and cruel, when their cruelty is being exposed, it would lead to an incredible amount of anguish and shame and remorse. There will be justice. This is not an easy topic to preach. I would never choose Or pick this topic. But I do think it's an important one. 
And I think there's a lot of confusion and misunderstanding out there. And so I hope that this has brought some clarification. I also hope that this isn't the final word. I hope that this is a conversational starter, not the final word. I hope the conversation will go on, that you will start searching the scriptures for yourself, discussing with other people. Continue to discuss it with your home groups, amongst your friends and family, but let the conversation continue. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are, well, we're quite humbled by the, the topic, and um, we don't really know how to, to talk about it or to deal with it. And Father, we pray that you would lead us by your Holy Spirit into all truth. But Father, we do thank you that you love us so much, that you were prepared to take all the punishment, all the consequences of our unkind, selfish, and thoughtless things we've done, that you took it all upon yourself so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be embraced by you and experience eternal life with you. And Father, we also thank you that you are a God of justice and you would put all things right. You would sort this world out. And often when we see, we look at the world, we see so much injustice and it seems like the evil just get away with it. Father, we thank you that we have a hope that there will be justice. And so, Father, we pray that uh, you would be with us as we continue to wrestle with this subject and continue to lead us into truth. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information about Abergavenny Baptist Church, please visit our website at abergavennybaptist.co.uk.